You're listening to Out of the Box Success with Audra Bartlett. In order for you to live your most extraordinary life, you're going to have to be willing to think outside of the box as to what success truly means for you in your business and life. Hi, I'm Audra Bartlett, certified success coach, multi-passionate, multi-business entrepreneur, and I've come to shake things up to get those creative juices flowing and get you really believing in what is possible truly for your life. So this is a really special episode, and I just want to invite all the listeners to really be open to open their minds to understanding the world in a different way. There are often times and places in which we think we know uh, what we really don't know, that we can't possibly understand the capacity, the depth, um, the truth of any one human being. We often like to think of the world as uh, very black and white or binary, in right and wrong, but a lot of the way the world actually is, is much more nuanced than that. It is often many shades of gray and many shades of understanding in different ways. So as we go into this episode, I again invite you to be open, to expand your perception of what is, what can be redemption and human growth. I just wanted to take a moment and read something that really spoke to me about what we're going to experience and hear. And it has never let a single moment of your life define you. Never let a moment in this life define you, not a moment of weakness or a moment of defeat or a moment of complete despair or a moment of failure. They are merely just a phase in your life, but they are not your life. They are not what defines you. The most unjust thing you could ever do to yourself is to make one moment in this life determine who you get to be or let one opinion of someone about you in this moment define you. You are not a moment. You are not someone's opinion of you. You are not even your own opinion of how you see yourself in this moment. You are so much more than this. You are so much more than just a moment. You are so much more than just an opinion. So today... My guests are Thomas and Carrie Gant. Thomas is an accomplished writer, speaker, and facilitator. He is a returning citizen after serving 25 years of incarceration. Carrie is a teacher, writer, and advocate. Thomas and his wife, Carrie, publish a blog titled For Life in Love and have co-founded the Breaking Down Barriers Project. This seeks to educate community members of the ties between racism in the carceral system in our country. Thomas has been featured in many articles and publications, including the Marshall Project, about his work as a prison hospice aide during the COVID pandemic. They have both worked to destigmatize individuals and families that are impacted by incarceration and our criminal legal system. So welcome. Um, Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm so glad you guys could be here. So. I really want to just get into starting with the conversation about change, about understanding. And one of the things that I read in your blog, Thomas, which is incredibly beautiful for any listeners out there who are unsure about 
some of the systems and how things work or even how they could have gotten together in that experience, I encourage you to read it. And in the blog, you say, because of the beautiful, loving foundation I had as a child, I was able to make the quote unquote return. In other words, I didn't quote change. I merely returned to who I was destined to be. I've learned that despite past failures, you still define who you are. You go on to talk about love of yourself and others. Tell us the pathway uh, away from loving yourself and others that led you to your incarceration. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for that. So I have to go back and say that I was raised in a very loving um, environment. Um, my mother did her best to raise my three sisters and I. Um, and it wasn't until my teenage years that I realized that we were poor. <laughs> so never went without a meal, never, you know, didn't ha I had great clothes, shelter. I had support, um, everything. Um, I was a Boy Scout. I participated in extracurricular activities. Um, you name it, I had to have a job. We was in church two, three, four times a week, um, did everything. Uh, my mother... I have to give her credit for supporting me um, when I was playing little league football and baseball. She was there every game that she could be. Um, she didn't know how to throw a fastball or, you know, throw a Hail Mary football pass, but she was still present and there. Um, my father not being into my life, looking back, I also realized that that was an issue for me. Um, I was angry, didn't even really know it on the outside. Um, I smiled, I was happy, but on the inside I was messed up. My mother was, you know, working, you know, struggling to take care of us. And so, but she still made me realize that I had to have dreams and goals. And um, some of the dreams or goals that I had was I wanted to be an architect or I wanted to be a professional football player. So growing up in Buffalo, um, you might know that my favorite professional team is the Buffalo Bills. Yes, of and course. <laughs> I, ironically... Had I held on to my dreams and goals and actually went to college and played professional, we would have won some Super Bowls by now. But hopefully that's still to come. Uh, but I say that jokingly because I look back also, we talk about leading to incarceration. I had those dreams and goals, mm -hmm. but I wasn't putting in the work necessary to attain them, right? Um, anybody can have a dream, but if you're not putting in work necessary to attain it, um, that's just all it is, is a dream. So um, unfortunately... I wrestled with self-esteem issues as I began to get into my teenage years um, and that anger that I was carrying along with me like a, with a ball and chain. Um, I had a speech impediment. I was a stutterer and I was very embarrassed and shy about it. Um, it was kind of crippling um, to me, um, but still was pushing through. Um, still many to high, through high school, started getting a little bit better, but still wasn't comfortable in my own skin. If I hadn't, didn't have the latest pair of Jordans or gold chain, I didn't really feel cooler down, so mm, to yeah. speak, right? So graduated high school and went to college. Um, a little a little smart fact, uh, I didn't get the scholarship. I wanted to go to Alfred State and play D1 football for them. This was in 1994, and they were more reputable than UB and all the other schools that have, you know, got names now. But I was angry and didn't, I just, just gave up. My counselors in high school actually put the paperwork in for me to go to Erie Community College in downtown Buffalo. And I was to go to go there for two years and then transfer over to UB to play football for them. But somewhere along that time, everything to me came for me came at to a head, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, the anger, the self-esteem, the realizing the self-awareness that we are poor, that my mother is struggling. We are in a bad neighborhood, you know. 
So I felt like if we could have money, that would solve everything, mm -hmm. right? Um, if we had money, I could help my mother who's struggling, taking care of me and my three sisters, address my issues, and life would be grand. Um, so during college, I came up with a plan, and that plan was to drop out of college, sell drugs, make some quick money, take care of my family, and then go back to college. Mm -hmm. What I didn't realize was that selling drugs was not the right avenue. While I had a good mind state to help my family and want to do right by them, that's a beautiful thing. But I went about it the wrong way, right? I chose drug dealing because I thought it was harmless, thought it was easy, fast money. Hey, I got a product. I'm just going to give it to somebody. And what I realized once I started doing it, that selling drugs is anything but harmless, in order to be successful, you got to take on all these different characteristics that's unlike yourself or unlike who you was raised to be. You talk about returning to who I was. I became a, a totally different person. Selfish, liar, apathetic, violent, you know, only wanted to live for the day. These were characteristics that I was exuding that was different than what my mother had raised me to be. She's responsible, spiritual, God-fearing. I put all that to the side and became this whole other person. So fast track on how I actually got incarcerated, um, me and some guys who were selling drugs, we weren't in, we weren't the definition of what a gang is today. But, you know, by definition, if you're hanging with six or more people committing crimes, you will be labeled as a gang. So I guess we could, but we was more um, by neighborhood type of thing. So so all of us selling drugs and two of them were shot in a sort of like a turf war. And so I got mad, took matters into my own hands, trying to protect that fragile reputation that I had built and selling drugs. And the codes of the street or that lifestyle is you can't let somebody do something to you mm -hmm. or otherwise you won't be successful anymore. And I believe that wholeheartedly. So took matters into my own hands and went and shot two of the guys that were involved. One of them actually died. And that's what got me incarcerated. Um, so in 1998, I was arrested, wasn't trying to be accountable at that moment or responsible. Um, I didn't testify at trial, but because of my experience with the criminal justice system prior, if we have a good lawyer, my mind stay, I'm just going to beat it. Wasn't ready to be accountable. And fortunately and unfortunately, I was convicted and I was sentenced to 25 years to life. And I was at the age of 21. Um, and I, I went to Attica in 1999 and then set a course to where I'm at now. Wow. Um, and I, and I, one of the things, a couple of the things I really want to point out for people that listen, right. That you were only 21 mm -hmm. and this is a, a lot of the stories that a lot of the people that are there were very young, you know, I, I know people 17, 18, 19, right. That, this is prior to us even having a fully developed prefrontal cortex of the the recognition of who we even are as human beings. And there are so many things that a lot of people may not be aware of when it comes to like, A, there was this, this level of anger that you were carrying around. And there's not a lot of help re regularly for people carrying anger, much less men carrying this really heavy burden of anger and what that can do. And often it's the only acceptable emotion for men is anger mm -hmm. and how attractive the life can seem 
you know, fast money, cars, jewelry, women, etc. It's very glamorized. It seems very sexy. Um, but the the dark truth is it requires you to become somebody else. Mm-hmm. It requires all of the shadowed kind of bad parts of you to come out, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the, all the things that are required to come out. And um, it's a path that a lot of young kids take because they think they can help through that path. They can help their family. I think that that, you know, needs to be noted because there's larger reasons for this sort of path and poverty and in uh, social structures, et cetera but also how easily something like that can happen um, and how much time goes between being 21 and being incarcerated for 25 years. Like your incarceration is longer than the time that you had in the free world. And this yeah. is a story for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like initially when you were convicted, you weren't fully ready to acknowledge what happened. And so I'm curious, was there a moment um, during the incarceration that you really recognized that things shifted or you realized what you had done and you feel like you returned to yourself and found redemption? Yeah, great. Um, so I've went over every inch of my life, right? I had 25 years to do this. And from the moment of the crime to how I got to that point to in prison to even figuring out when did I want to get back to who I know that my mother raised me to be and wanted me to be. Um, so I would say for me, I was very blessed and fortunate. I'm going to use the word blessed and fortunate because not only do I have a very strong spiritual foundation, but the answer sometimes is so intangible. Like I can't really pinpoint um, the exact moment. I will say that there was during the trial, the um, the victim's mother, and I hate using the word victim mother, but just to identify them. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mother had said, God bless me after I had mm-hmm. been sentenced and going to trial. That stayed with me. Like mm-hmm. how can a mother, you know, who just lost a child say, God bless me. Mm-hmm. That gave me chills. Um, that moment, that was in 1998. In 1999 in Attica, um, my mother, you know, I'm seeing her on the visit and the sadness, the hurt, the disappointment, the feeling like she fell, feeling like what did she do wrong or what she could have did better. That resonated with me. Um, and then also I was a father. Um, and, and, and I'm still a father. And so I said, even though I'm in prison, um, I have to turn this around, right? I got to make some sort of amends to uh, the person who I killed, mother. I have to make amends to my mother and also the kids that I left behind. Um, I didn't want nobody else to have to experience this type of pain anymore. I didn't want my mother crying on a visit, um, sad as a visit. I didn't want another mother to cry over her kid being killed. And I didn't want another child to grow up with their parent incarcerated. So in 1999, I said, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to try to give back and demystify this lifestyle. I didn't know how I was going to do it, um, but I'm going to start with myself. I'm going to get back right with God because I knew I was raised in a Christian household. 
I got to get right by God. I know that God can forgive no matter what it is, even though the world may not, God can. So my goal was to get back on track with God. So I started getting heavier in church and learning about myself. Next thing you know, just a series of events. People started giving me um, suggestions to do mentor. And I'm like, hey, I stutter. I, I'm just, I'm an introvert. I'm shy. Absolutely not. Some Italian mafia, right? Former mafia boss said, hey, you should get involved with this mentor. I think you do good in that. How does this Italian, you know, mafia guy think that I would do good in helping other people? I went along with it. And so I started doing AVP, Alternatives to Violence Project. And there we started introspective stuff and build my self-esteem. Then I got involved with the mentor program. And so in 2000, I set a course. I wanted to prove my remorse and my regret. And I believe wholeheartedly that remorse and regret means nothing if your actions aren't in line with it. So I wanted to make sure that my behavior, my actions proved that. So I was kind of saying in 2000, I kind of like got it and I answered the call. And mm -hmm. I every time I was doing this work, speaking to a youth, demystifying that lifestyle, um, helping people to love themselves, build their self-esteem up, I would get this indescribable joy. And for me, I call it finding what your purse, what your what your purpose is and your passion. And I want to do this for the rest of my life, type thing. That was those are the feelings that I was getting. And then from there, it just, you know, um matriculated into what I do now. So I think for me, just realizing that. Um, the hurt and pain I caused on others and then wanting to do something to make it up. And by the way, you can never make up for life for causing someone to lose their life. Mm -hmm. You never make amends for that. Like what price, what do you have to do? And I haven't found it. I don't know what it is, but I do know that in some way, if I could prevent another family from being harmed, if I can prevent another person from going to prison or another person losing their life to that senseless, you know, lifestyle, then hopefully but that's always been my mind state and and doing what I was doing. Yeah. And it really sounds like through that experience, some of the things that helped you get to this place was recognizing uh, a, your relationship or reconnection with God and b this uh, recognition of your purpose of something greater of something that really is a, allowing you to find that joy internally. And I think the system doesn't always allow for people to find that it further uh, elicits violence and anger and things that kind of continue to keep people away from the one thing they really need is to find that connection within themselves and that love for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. And I think another part of this conversation that's important is the recognition of the things that happened or led up to it were causing harm to many other people. But one of the things that I think a lot of people don't recognize about incarceration is that it is a family pain thing, right? It is, it's not just the person there or a few people, it reverberates out. It reverberates into the family, into the community. It is damaging in so many ways that that people can't see. It's not just, uh, it's financial, uh, which they've even done things recently to make it harder for people financially. Uh, and often these are people that don't have access to a lot of financial resources. 
and mm-hmm. it affects emotionally, generationally. And it's just really important for people to understand that this is like, this is, this is huge. This is an often unseen part of it, but it affects way more people than we could possibly ever imagine. Yes. Um, and so at some point, Carrie now enters speaking to some of this work, right? Some of this, these things that we're talking about and how, what was your meet cute? What was your, how did you begin working uh, with Thomas? How did you meet him? What was the work that you were doing? Yeah. So um, I, so I'm a teacher and I, I wrote a course called, um, well, I wrote a constitutional law course. I teach high school. And I um, have always had a fascination for um, for the law, particularly for um, the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court impacts policy. And uh, so, so I wrote a course um, uh, based around the Supreme Court and constitutional law. And come to find out, uh, high schoolers are not interested in constitutional <laughs> law. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> I know. They did that not share my passion. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, another case brief, really? And yeah. so mm. <laughs> uh, the thing is, at high school, if you want to teach a course, you have to make it so students will sign up for it. So, uh, so I changed my con law course to a course called Crime, Punishment, and Rights. And um, it, it is, it was loosely, I still had to keep some of those constitutional principles. So uh, that was the rights part of it. Uh, Cause I am passionate about the uh, individual freedoms that, uh, that our constitution gives us and uh, equally passionate uh, to, um, uh, to live in a society where we actually have those freedoms. So, um, uh, and then we would frame uh, we would frame the the constitutional principles around current events, um, and uh, and crime. So we would look at what was going on, uh, compare it to uh, case law, uh, look at that case law throughout history, and then uh, the punishment part of the course. And this was one of the hooks to get students to take it. By the way, was a trip to uh, Attica Correctional Facility. So there was also a thing called Fun Day Fridays where we would um, we would also be able to watch some kind of um, video that was related to the content that we were talking about. So, mm-hmm. but the trip really was the the hook for many students. And so for uh, so for years, I was bringing um, students in. The course was so popular that I was able to uh, bring two groups of students in, one in the um, fall and then one in the spring semester. And uh, Thomas uh, and um, the other guys, as I referred to them, uh, were part of a program called uh, CAP, so Community Awareness Program at Attica. And uh, Thomas was the, uh, what, what I saw was the leader of the program. And each time uh, before we came in, uh, I would uh, communicate with him uh, through the, uh, who's known as the ORC. And, um, he would, uh, um, you know, just, I would just give him the heads up for uh, what to, um, you know, what, what to focus on. Um, so whether it was, I had students that were um, 
uh, had attendance issues or if I knew students that had issues at home or maybe you know students who I knew were making uh, poor choices or risky choices, I would communicate that to him and then they would make sure that the um, uh, the focus of the CAP session at some point would be around those behaviors. And so our communication was largely just um, professional for uh, for many, many years, 12 or 15 years. It was, it was just professional. And wow. then we- 12 or 15 years. Yeah, it was a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time. I actually found a letter from him um, Again, just a professional, you know, response to what I had uh, let him know, uh, dating back to uh, it was like 2005. So, um, and it was in my it was in my desk at school. So, um, you know, so it was for a long time. And I would send a Christmas card here and there, you know, knowing that, um, you know, just knowing how. Um, lonely prison is knowing, you know, that, uh, that all the guys really needed um, encouragement. So that was really just the, the purpose of it. Uh, I was in a relationship at a time, at the time, I knew that he was married at the time. So there was really no um, thought of anything past this, uh, you know, professional, professional relationship. So, so that's what led, that's what led me there. Um, and then uh, fast forward, I'll kind of fast forward a little bit to yeah, how we got to talk. <laughs> yeah, let's talk so about the juicy stuff, married. right? Like, <laughs> so professional, yada, yada, 15 years, great. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, so in 2014, um, I took a group of students in, in um, uh, late that semester. So uh, December, it was end of November, early December, and uh, had a great um, CAP session. Um, as always, when we were getting ready to leave, you know, Thomas would always see us out of the visiting room. So we would, at Attica, there are two visiting rooms and um, visiting room B is where we were, uh, where we were always um, kind of congregated. So he would walk us to like the door of visiting room or the entryway actually of visiting room A. And, and he said, he would always say, okay, I'll see you in whether it was going to be February or, you know, November that next year. Um, you know, he said, I'll see you then. So we left, uh, as we're getting closer to the get, you know, preparing to go into Attica. Um, it was early January. I got a letter in my school mailbox from none other than Thomas Gant, but it wasn't uh, from Attica Correctional Facility. It was a different facility. It was Wendy Correctional mm -hmm. Facility. So I thought, oh, well, this is odd. And I actually didn't know really how prison worked in terms of the um, um, communication at that point. So it didn't even occur to me that he had, he had moved or anything was off. So I opened the letter, I get back to my room, I opened the letter and it had indicated that uh, he was in fact uh, moved from Attica to Wendy Correctional Facility and um, and that he would not be at the next CAP session, but you know, no worries that uh, he left it in good hands and we would have a great session, um, you know, but he, and I refer to this as his pickup line. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he said, if I had one parting wish, it would be to keep in touch with you. So I thought, oh, all right. Well, you know, that's nice. Um, it was, you know, 
I didn't really think too much about it. I thought, well, I'll go on the CAP session and then I'll, you know, just write back and let them know how things went, kind of thinking along that personal or that professional line again. Mm -hmm. And so I went on the CAP session. Um, his, uh, his friend, uh, Walter Ball, uh, met us. So he kind of stepped into his uh, leadership role. And, uh, you know, so he met us at the um, at the visiting room. And he was like, you know, I'm sorry, Thomas isn't here. And I kind of cut him off. And I said, Oh, I know he wrote me. And he goes, what he did, like, he got super excited. Like, almost <laughs> he must have known something. <laughs> he did. Yeah. <laughs> so he got super excited. And, and I said, he goes, did you write him back? And I said, No, I haven't written him back yet. I, I'm I'll, I was gonna write after this and let him know how it went. He goes, Oh, please do, you know, so as he's walking me out, he reminded me, please, you know, write Thomas, let him know how, how things went. And, you know, I did. And, uh, and we started uh, corresponding then um, through what we refer to as snail mail. This was mm -hmm. before the days yep. of JPay and emails and all of that. So, uh, so we just started corresponding. Uh, I asked him one time how one would actually visit because I had never been on a personal visit before. Mm -hmm. So I asked him, you know, the times and uh, kind of, a, um, you know, how that worked. Uh, I went up, I actually surprised him one day. Uh, we had a day off of, of work. So I came up and surprised him um, and started visiting. And he started, I hooked up a phone to be able to call um, and, you know, started calling. Uh, for several years, we wrote uh, letters to each other every day. Mm -hmm. And so we were, um, we were, you know, just corresponding. And then, uh, Sure enough, a little while later, he asked me to marry him and I accepted. So here we are. Wow. I want to point out uh, two things. One is Thomas still retained his game uh, after all those years. <laughs> he, still, <laughs> he was still like, let me throw this question in here real quick, just in case. Right. <laughs> my my last, my <laughs> wish. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just in it case. Was very, right. very smooth, I'm gonna point mm -hmm. out. Uh good. But uh yeah. and and also just so people know that JPay is like an email photo sharing system essentially. So when she refers to like the the JPay, it's an app that people can get to communicate with incarcerated individuals, send photos, send little videos. And so this was before that was even available. Um, and that, that communication started. And I just want to go back just a little bit because I'm curious about, uh, with you, Thomas, um, it sounds like you were in a mentor program and you had kind of gotten to the place where you're part of the CAP program, correct? Mm -hmm. And yes. were there any sort of, so people understand, were there qualifications, requirements, like you know, every incarcerated individual wasn't invited to be part of this program, correct? Like right. there was, there was some, so what was it for you to be able to participate and be mm -hmm. meeting with Carrie and her students? You know, well, there are some basic criteria. First, um, your charge, so that you've been convicted of. Um, so nobody who has arson um, or um, any sexual offense against um, kids or, or or others. So that will automatically disqualify you. Secondly, um, good disciplinary record. So you have to have good disciplinary in order to participate, meaning 
couldn't have spent a certain amount of time in a, a special housing unit or what we refer to as the box. And then uh, you also got to pass the, the interview process. So there was a panel at Attica, which was um, a counselor, two counselors, a senior counselor, and then officers. So if anybody had any issue or problem with you during that time, you wouldn't be able to make it. Then you had the interview process with the guys who's already participated in the youth mentor program. Mm -hmm. So um, I was just fortunate. Um, I passed all those requirements. And then we we like to refer to ourselves as the gatekeepers. So one of our main things is you're not down here to pick up girls, right? Yeah, um, people will try to hit on you. People will, you know, but our goal is to focus on kids, um, youth, and make sure that they don't come to prison. Mm -hmm. So we adhere to that. So hence why I didn't reach out to Carrie because she was always attractive. Right. From <laughs> I mean, if, if, if anybody can see Carrie right. on this video on YouTube, right. like she's attractive. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> her smile, woman. right. Her intelligence, <laughs> her, I mean, everything about her, but I was like, I can't cross that line. So I had to keep everything professional. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. It, you know, do all that. And, um, so I never reached out to her because of that. So I wasn't able to reach out to her until I was up the program, but those were the basic requirements to that. Like we, Truly, truly adhere to that, respect the program and what we're doing down here because we were in the process of, our, our goal is let's change the narrative, number one, about people that's incarcerated, and then two, let's make sure we're passionate about what we're doing, and that is these youth, making sure they don't come here. So besides all the stuff, we have to stay focused, and so we were kind of like the gatekeepers um, of that too, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, that is an incredibly important role, and everybody involved was really serious about respecting that because of the impact of the work. Mm -hmm. um, right. Because it was so important that you were being allowed within the confines of a very unfree place to have this opportunity to impact lives in this way. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, so we all know that Thomas uh, found you very attractive in the beginning, Carrie. Uh, what were what were your uh, first impressions of Thomas? Yeah, so I guess I have two first impressions, right? So the first impression uh, when you know I was going in, bringing students in, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, you know first met him. Um, you know, I, I just was impressed by his, uh, his authenticity. He was, uh, you know, and, and, and going in for so many years, um, you know, I, I really had a good opportunity to judge that authenticity and the, just the genuineness of, um, of his character, of his spirit, you know, of course, part of the, um, Part of the class that I taught. So after we um, after we came back from the CAP session, we would look all of the um, the guys up on. Uh, so there's a site that you can look up um, uh, people and and really kind of fact checked because that was part of the uh, you know part of the curriculum. And uh, and, and every single time, you know, first of all, Thomas's story never changed. Um, everything that he said um, was static throughout those years. And 
Um, and, and it was obvious that the goal for him of participating in this program also was static and was genuine, that he really did care about kids and he really didn't want any, um, you know, any students, any youth, any kids to go through the same things that he has gone through. And that he had put his, he made it very clear right from the beginning that he had put his family through, he had put his victims and his victims' family through, and uh, and his community. That it was, you know, he actually was really instrumental in laying the foundation for the restorative work that, you know, that I do at school and in the community because, you know, he and uh, the the entire panel pointed out how crime doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, incarceration doesn't happen in a vacuum, that there are waves that happen because of all of these things and because of our responses as a society to these things as well. So um, so none of that changed and that um, it impressed me. Um, his empathy for um, just for humans in general impressed me so um, or made an impression. And so it was very easy and natural in that second what I I'm going to refer to here is that second meeting, that more personal meeting. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was an easy transition because I already knew and felt that I could trust him because all of the things that he had said for so many years had remained the same. His spirit had remained the same. His character, his personality. So it 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 was um, it was a fairly easy transition. And then when I met him on like had a chance to talk to him personally on that first visit all of that was really just cemented. So, um, you know, of course I, I thought he was attractive and, you know, he, um, uh, you know, was just uh, wonderful to look at. If you, if you <laughs> yes, yes, folks, he is also wonderful Thanks. to look at everybody. Thank you. <laughs> right, um, very strong, he has a very strong presence about him, you know. Um, but also in, in, you know, we, we talk about this um, together that, you know, his, his faith. Um, I had, uh, so bef it's interesting because I had sworn off of men. Um, mm -hmm. I was in uh, what was an abusive relationship prior to, um, uh, you know, to meet, meeting that second meeting uh, with Thomas. Um, and uh, it was very draining. It was very um, exhausting. I was just exhausted. I was exhausted, not I was actually exhausted with life, but I was also exhausted with relationships. And I swore that I wasn't going to get into another relationship, um, you know, number one, until I worked on myself and found, you know, what uh, really found what I wanted out of life. Uh, I felt like I had lost myself in the um, prior relationship that I had. And, um, and it literally brought me to my knees and I prayed to God um, please just, when I'm ready, send me someone who deserves me. Hmm. Funny thing was, <clears throat> I get that letter in my mailbox a couple weeks later. Hmm. So, and this was after two years of, um, of working on myself, of finding myself again, of, you know, just doing a lot of repair from the trauma that I had mm -hmm. experienced in that relationship. Um, so it was a, a long time, but when I finally got on my knees and said, you know, just send me someone who deserves me. And then this letter shows up. And by the way, I didn't think about it at that point when the letter showed up, I didn't think about the prayer. Mm -hmm. After we started communicating via snail mail, 
I said to, I, you know, I just looked up to the sky and I'm like, you, you're kidding me. Right. Like, this is who you've sent me. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's like, you do know he's incarcerated, right? <laughs> like you do know he's in prison. And you're not going to make this funny? like super easy for me. Are you? No. <laughs> right. Right. You know, but it really, uh, um, uh, it may sound hokey to some people, but it is totally uh, in line with who I am spiritually and our faith. But it, uh, it, 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 it was he, yes, this is who he sent me. Um, and in every aspect, uh, he, um, you know, he showed me that he deserved me. Um, and, and, you know, I joke also because I, I, I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, but I actually had three rounds of an interview process to become his wife. I'll let him talk about that, but <laughs> he literally interviewed me and it wasn't until the third round when I looked at him and I said, are you interviewing me? And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. So, and I was doing my own form of interview as well, like in that time of kind of feeling out. But the beauty of that is that both of us had standards, right? Both of us had these standards that uh, we were not going to go below because we um, we had had learned from our experiences that um, you know that we deserved um, a, a level of respect, a level of love, and um, a, a level of intimacy that uh, you know to make to make ourselves happy and put each other first. And, you know, that's something that you wouldn't necessarily think about, you know, of someone in prison, like, you you know, I think that the, the general stereotype is, oh, well, these guys are just looking for anyone to just, uh, you know, carry them through or, um, you know, to, to get over on. Um, and I'll, I, I, if we have time, I'll speak a little bit more on that. Um, but that is, absolutely not the case, um, you know, for everyone. And I would argue for, for the majority of people, uh, you know, people, I think it's a, it's a basic human need that people, you know, just want to feel, they want to feel loved. They want to feel accepted. And, you know, we need relationship in our lives, uh, to be healthy human beings. We need, um, uh, uh intimacy and not, not, and I'm not referring to physical intimacy. I'm referring to relational and spiritual intimacy with another person. I think it's hardwired into us. And it was clear that, uh, that um, he was uh, uh, deserving of that as well. So I'll kick it back to you. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think that the conversation is important about the, you know, and I have a question kind of coming later about that from the, the wives perspective, but it's important for people to understand that like the the narrative around prison the narrative around uh the men and women in prison the narrative around relationships and that everybody's just in there trying to get some male prison wife or something because they need to like get money from them and extort them and they take examples and has that happened sure right mm -hmm. that's not to say that that has not happened and thomas probably knows examples of that happening right but 
I'm curious, you're saying that from your examples, from your perspectives, that the need is a human need. We need connection. We need conversation. We need to know that we can talk to somebody to have emotional intimacy. And one of the things that prison, for the most part, takes away from you is your access to physical intimacy, right? And, and you know, people always want to talk about conjugal visits and et cetera, and how that, but the majority of people don't get that. <laughs> uh, and it's, and it's quite a bit to even get to the place where you get permission or allowed to, you know, to do that. And there's a lot of facilities that don't offer that. And there's a lot of states that don't offer that. And, so a lot of people are engaging in these relationships because of a deeper um, emotional and spiritual connection and desire and and need there, because a lot of those things, other things are non-existent. What what are you, what is your perspective, Thomas, about that? And and please tell us about this interview process. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, so so one of the main things that helped me get to the path of caring about others, wanting to help others, and loving others is I had to first love myself. Mm-hmm. And so once I started building my esteem, being comfortable and happy with who I was, all the bad decisions I made, all of the physical ailments. I mean, I lost my hair in prison, for God's sakes, right? <laughs> and so all of these different things but then it, I said that's not who I am that bad decision I made you know in January 1998 that's not who I am the fact that I dropped out of college that's not who, I am who I am right now and who I want to be and I love me mm-hmm. right I believe God has forgiven me I've forgiven me and even if nobody else forgives me because they have a right to do that I'm going to offer an apology but I'm going to move forward in life you know regardless of anything else and I love me. And I started loving characteristics about who I was. I started feel, looking out to see what comes natural and easy for me and was happy with that. And so I also realized that you have to protect that, especially in prison. Uh, that environment is not nurturing. It's not helpful to a person to love themselves. It's not good for your mental. It's not spiritual. None of that. It's a desert. It's an oasis of hatred, heart, still, and apathy. But I had to love me and make right with that. And so the more I poured in and loved myself, the more I was able to love, you know, others. So in protecting myself, I wanted to make sure that the right woman or anybody else to come into my life had to be right. And I don't want to sound arrogant about this, but um, I love me so much. And I know that whoever got me is going to get a great man. I'm talking about a man who's going to support you and love you, you know, so, uh, you know, wipe your tears away, make your dreams come true you know, all I'm giving you my all, sacrificing Mm -hmm. everything for you. So it had to be the right person. So I did have this like little interview thing because I had, and I'll I'll just be honest, I did have a few women try to, you know, get in relationship with me. And I, I was able to thank God, find out that for them was more about lust or that physical, it, it was a weird thing that they just didn't match for me. Um, so I even had this thing, which Gary had already passed the test. So the last test was if you can make it through visiting in the summertime, right? Putting <laughs> up with somebody in prison, 
then that's it. You you're there. The best way <laughs> to measure any person, this is coming from a guy standpoint. I'm giving y'all some, I'm giving y'all some behind the scenes, right? This is what we, do. we pay attention to this. This is very big for us. If a woman is willing to come visit you in the summertime, right, then that is a good woman because nobody wants to come sit in a hot prison or in that type of environment when they could be enjoying life out there. Mm -hmm. So, but I decided to marry Carrie before getting a chance to see that because she had passed um, everything else. I mean, her spirit, her love for God, one of her biggest characteristics that I noticed in her when she was coming back in Attica is her passion for her students and her children. The mother mm -hmm. in her was so attractive, just nurturing, big heart. She has a bleeding heart for people. And that alone is attractive. I mean, yeah, the physical stuff, but her passion to help others is second to none. And so that always intrigued me about her. And I got a chance, you know, to see that. So, yeah, so I, I had a list and she checked all, all of the marks. I wanted a woman who... I call it have her own gas. And by that, I mean her own ambition. I didn't want a woman who wanted me to come up with everything. I wanted her to be doing her thing and I'm doing my thing. Maybe we can come together. And, and she had that. Um, I wanted a woman who was aware of society, who could talk politics, but also could tell me who the bills drafted in the third round. She could <laughs> do all of that. I wanted a woman that, you know, loved God more than she loved me. That was her. I wanted, you know, a, a mother, a woman who, who loved her. So all these things, a woman who loved her family, like I will get a chance to um, talk about or family who loved her. Her family was not for us getting together. And which is, and to me, that was a good thing because it showed that her family really cared about her. I mean, nobody thinks of ideally you want your, your daughter or your child to marry somebody in prison. Right. So um, so all these things, you know, lined up. And also, when you know you got that good thing, you got to do everything you can to keep it and hold it. Because I'm like, I didn't want to miss this chance. This is a great woman. My soul is saying it, my spirit, my body and everything. And here's a little, a little tidbit, Audra, that I'll share with you. Yeah. That prior October 2014, I had a friend who would talk to me. She's very into the universe, stars and moon, astrology. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm a Christian, but we 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 are perfect match. So she says, hey, there's going to be a red moon this October. When this red moon happens, the moon is the closest it is to the earth. Not going to be that way for, for years. Whatever prayer you put up to the moon is going to manifest itself in six months. Now, this hmm. is October 2014. I'm like, uh, in my mind, I don't want to offend her, but I don't believe in all that astrology stuff. I believe in God. So but I tell mm -hmm. you what I'll do. You pray to the moon and I'm going to pray to God and then, you know, put our prayers out together. Yeah. I mean, she broke everything down. The moon does have an attraction on the earth and there's some real things with this, but I'm yeah. like, I'm praying to God. Anyway, we put the prayers up there that I wanted a wife. I wanted a wife that fit all those characteristics that I just said too, by the way. And she said, whatever you pray six months later, it'd be, it'd be manifesting. So that October, I started going through all these headache and problems in Attica because we were doing this nonviolent thing where we wanted to stop the gang violence and help people. Officers didn't like that. They felt like we, you don't run to jail, we do. So that's how I got transferred out of Attica into Wendy, by the way. But October, mm -hmm. November, December, January, February, March, April, six months, I had my wife and we was married. Oh, yeah. All because of that red moon. I'm going to give credit to God. She's going <laughs> to give credit to the red moon. 
for six months. And I put all those characteristics out there and Carrie fit them all to a T. I didn't realize that until my friend had said, hey, so you get married in April. You know, that was six months after the, I said, oh. oh. <laughs> so that's a little tidbit that I always like to share with people too. You know, yeah. I was able to find my my true love, even in such a terrible and dark place um, as prison. Yeah, and I think, um, I think if anybody, you know, can really hear that, to hear how both of you had separately had entire lives, had uh, worked on yourselves, had really figured out the things you want. This wasn't a thing that you whimsically wandered into and that you both separately prayed and and looked to God to the moon to what you know to, to help find your partner right and and that the two of you were brought together and that this is love in a very in a lot of ways unconventional way but the story itself really is a, a beautiful story of love, right? It's, it is a story that I imagine people right now looking for love wish that they could have this sort of connection, wish that they could have this sort of like divine intervention to find their partner. And that what we ask for does not always show up the way we think it's going to. Mm -hmm. it really doesn't right and so <laughs> we we put it out there and we have an idea and then when the thing that we really want presents itself and it's not in the package we exactly imagined it would be people often um reject the gift right they're like but this is not how yeah. I thought it was supposed to show up in yeah. in so many in so many ways in our lives you know we ask for careers we ask for things and the job comes to us and we're like but that's not the thing that I thought it was going to be but it is the gift that's being given to you and so this recognition that like this isn't just this isn't a story about you and an incarcerated individual at the time right it's a story of divine love This was such a packed interview and so many amazing insights. We went actually two whole hours. We've decided to cut this into two parts. So join us next week for part two. Till next time, you too can live your most extraordinary life. Much love. Want to learn more? Go to audrabartlett.com where you can learn how to work with me, sign up on the email list, and even book a free call with me.